Welcome to 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I'm Amanda Schager. On December 18, 2015, Etherton Gallery hosted a panel discussion on prison reform in conjunction with an exhibition by famed photographer Danny Lyon. Today on 30 Minutes, we continue with part two of this discussion. Up first, Etherton Gallery director Hannah Glassman introduces the exhibit and panelists who included Arizona State Senator Steve Farley, journalist Margaret Regan, attorney Lizette Flores, and American Friends Service Committee organizer Grace Gamez. This panel was moderated by Tucson Weekly political reporter and Zona politics host, Jim Ninsel. Welcome. I'm Hannah Glasson. I'm the director of Etherton Gallery, and we want to welcome you to another of our panel discussions when we uh, have an opportunity to do something like this. We try to put something together, so keep an eye out for other things that we do in conjunction with the different shows that we have. Our current exhibit, which is up right now, and I hope you take some time to look at it after you will have time. Um, is called Conversations with the Dead. Uh, it's a body of 80 photographs that was taken in 1967 by the social documentary photographer Danny Lyon. Lyon was only 25 years old when he was allowed to go into six of the 13 prisons that made up the Texas penitentiary system. At that time, there were 12,500 prisoners there. Today, there are 200,000 inmates. Arizona, which has the sixth highest incarceration rate in the nation and the highest of any border state, also has the distinction of having a 40% recidivism rate. As of November, there were 42,847 inmates in Arizona's prisons. Nearly 17% of those inmates are held in the state's expanding private prison system. We bring you a distinguished panel tonight to discuss just a small part of what the discussion must be about prison reform, including why prison populations continue to grow, why the state funds and advocates for private prisons, detention centers for immigrant families, and how prison affects the long-term hopes and lives of incarcerated and formerly incarcerated individuals and their loved ones. Serving his fifth term in elected office, Arizona State Senator Steve Farley represents Tucson's District 9 in the Arizona State Senate. One of his many legislative priorities is public safety. To that end, he has called for the Department of Corrections to return to its mission of correcting behaviors that put inmates in prison, advocating on programs to prepare inmates for reintroduction to society, and greater oversight on private prison contractors. He says that we can no longer afford to put private prison profit above public safety. A longtime highly honored journalist in Tucson, author Margaret Regan's most recent book, Detained and Deported, Stories of Immigrant Families Under Fire, was just last week named a Southwest Book of the Year. And Margaret has some copies here, too, if you didn't get yours yet. And she'll even sign it for you, I think. The book investigates conditions in Arizona's grim detention centers, many of them run by the for-profit Corrections Corporation of America, 
the 30-year-old company that is the builder and operator of numerous prisons, jails, and detention centers on behalf of the Federal Bureau of Prisons and the states. Lizette Flores serves as general counsel and policy advisor for the Senate Democratic Caucus, where she staffs the Committee on Rules, the Committee on Judiciary, and the Committee on Federalism, Mandates, and Fiscal Responsibility. She provides advice on issues relating to corrections, among other issues. Prior to joining the Senate Democratic staff, Lizette served as the executive director of the Immigration and Legal Services Department of Friendly House, a nonprofit provider, Phoenix provider of social and legal services. Dr. Grace Gomez holds a PhD in Justice Studies from Arizona State University and a Master's of Science in Mexican-American Studies and Public Health from the University of Arizona. A mother, activist, and scholar, Gomez's research, coupled with her own personal experience in what she calls the criminal punishment system, gives her insight into its structure and operation, particularly its impact on women and loved ones. Her recent research explores the role of motherhood in relation to the long-lasting effects imposed by criminal identity. And our host, Jim Ninsel, has covered politics for the Tucson Weekly and Arizona Public Media for two decades. He is now the host of Zona Politics, airing Sundays on the CW Tucson and KXCI Community Radio. The Arizona Newspaper Association named him a 2014 Journalist of the Year, and the Association of Alternative News Media honored his long-running Tucson Weekly column, The Skinny, as the best alt-weekly political column in the country. He also serves as Southern Arizona correspondent for Phoenix PBS affiliate KAET Channel 8 and teaches government reporting at the U of A School of Journalism. And with that, we will start, and uh, Jim is going to start with a question. Let me ask Grace to uh, talk a little bit about the uh, Ban the Box effort uh, that's going on. Uh, it has to do with the challenge of getting a job once you've been convicted of a crime, and on job applications there's a little box that you have to check if you've been convicted of a felony, and uh, there's there's been some larger employers who have eliminated that on the front page of the job application. The city of Tucson's done it, Pima County's done it, the federal government uh, did it earlier this year. Is that actually uh, a helpful thing, and does it make it easier for someone who's gotten out of jail to get a job? I really wish I could say yes. <laughs> I, I, down the box policies or fair hiring practices, they don't actually remove the box or background checks. What they do is move them until later on in the hiring process. So one research study indicated that 76% of hiring discrimination occurs at the submission of a job application. In that same study, they found that 15% of the potential employers, when they were able to have face-to-face -face contact with a potential employee, that reduced the, the negative perception of uh, having a, a criminal record. However, that doesn't mean that discrimination doesn't still happen, just happens later on in the, in the process, um, which is actually very devastating. It's, it's something that I went through myself after graduating with my, with my doctorate. I was offered a faculty position. I was, I was so proud, really, of myself for, for being able to 
overcome these these significant challenges. Um, I disclosed early on in the, the hiring process, um, I said, you know, if there are policies that would prevent my hire, I'd, I'd rather not, you know, continue continue with this process. They said, no, there's nothing that would, would prevent your hire, and there isn't. Um, it all comes down to how HR people implement these policies, these ban-the-box policies, right? How they read adverse findings. So I was on track to move, to relocate. My partner resigned from his job that he held for 20 years. We pulled our daughter out of school. And at the end of, of June, the vice provost rescinded the job offer. So hiring discrimination still takes place even when there are ban-the-box policies. I think that the benefit of having a, a ban-the-box policy is that it opens up the possibility for having these conversations about the impediments of rejoining civil society. That's what I would say. All right, and then I want to just ask Steve about the possibility of uh, that kind of ban-the-box policy at the state level. Uh, if there's any talk at all at the legislature about that, and then I want to throw it open to questions from you all. So, Steve, any any uh, talk at all about the idea of uh, for state government? And when, we, and when we say talk, we need talk from the majority at this point, and the majority hasn't talked a lot about that that idea. There isn't a lot of solutions coming from them in terms of how to deal with people. It's been predominantly punishment. I mean, the poverty is something that there are folks in the legislature who think makes you a worse person because you're in poverty. There's something wrong with you because you're in poverty. We've had bills of things like uh, having a food stamp card to become bright orange so people can see you like a scarlet letter um, because you dare to be poor. And in fact, the governor is now proposing a, a, an elimination of the state income tax and replacing it with, with an institution of sales tax on food. So it would be literally a transfer of wealth from the poor to the super rich in this I state. I can't imagine the numbers really <laughs> add up on that. But, no, they don't. Uh, but that's that's what he's looking to do, and and that's the direction in which this is the, the state has been going. No, no talk of sentencing alternatives to reduce the prison population. Well, sentencing the treatment programs is is as close as we've gotten to something. Um, I, I, I know that there are some of us in our caucus who are talking about being able to do what Mississippi did, which was take the minimum sentence of 85%, the minimum time served, and change, shrink that to 50%. So there is an opportunity to be able to reduce those sentences. Um, mandatory minimums aren't there yet. Um, we may be at some point in the future looking towards that. Uh, um, and I did, I did want to mention, um, well, this isn't strictly responsive to your question, that I, I'm almost done with a book that I've just started reading that, that is amazing called Mr. Smith Goes to Prison. And I don't know if any of you have heard about that at all. It's a very fast read. It's, it's amazing in terms of the information of what actually happens in prison. It's written by a state senator from St. Louis who lied to the feds about a campaign contribution and ended up spending a year in a federal minimum security prison but minimum security isn't country club prison anymore. They don't have those anymore. This was a prison where he was in with a whole lot of other serious offenders who had been in there for decades. And his view from inside that prison is totally eye-opening 
to find out the day-to-day life of what actually happens in the prison and how some of the tendencies of the prisoners to actually do some healthy things are quashed by the system and by the corrections officers who do it. There's this incredible alternative economy that, that of entrepreneurialism that's, that could be very useful on the outside but ends up developing this sort of warped way based on the, the system itself. And I've got all sorts of policy ideas just from reading that whole thing. This guy's now a professor at Rutgers talking about the whole thing, and, and his guy's got lots of policy ideas as well. Um, it, so I re- highly recommend that book if you have a chance to find that one. His name actually is Smith, so it isn't just a... I'd actually like to insert something in, into the conversation because examples like that, there's, they're you know, beautiful, quote-unquote, success stories. But the, the research really on the relationship between human capital and recidivism suggests that human capital, um, the human capital that folks have when they're swept up into the system, not what skills or education they acquire while they are incarcerated, are um, better predictors at determining recidivism and unemployment post-punishment. So again, we're talking about structural and social ills. To me, that's where the conversation needs to um, begin and be rooted in, in the structural issues of poverty, racism, discrimination that is entrenched, really, in, in our society. All right. Uh, questions from the audience? Yes. You are listening to a panel discussion on prison reform presented by Etherton Gallery on 30 Minutes, 91.3 KXCI Tucson. The discussion was opened up to questions from the audience. A question was asked about mental health care in prisons. And I, and I think we've heard from uh, Sheriff Dupnik here and, and our new sheriff, uh, Chris Nanos, that uh, the Pima County Jail is uh, the county's largest mental health facility. Um, did anybody want to address the mental I, health issue? I could address, address that a little bit. In um, Eloy Detention Center, that has one of the highest suicide rates of all the immigration detention centers in the United States. Um, I believe we had another suicide just this past year. Um, when I was in the process of researching my book around 2013, there were two suicides two days apart. And it came to light at that time, this Corrections Corporation of America was not even complying with the ICE standards for mental health. And I remember the ICE spokeswoman, I said to her, well, why aren't they complying? You know, we're paying the Corrections Corporation of America a large amount of money. You know, we're paying $2 billion a year for detention centers. I said, well, why can't you make them comply? She said, well, we're negotiating right now to get them into compliance, but they were already several years out of compliance with even the most minimal mental health standards that ICE has has done. So I think when you get into these private prison situations, you're even worse off because, as we've discussed, I think with the private prisons, the less money they spend, um, the more profits their shareholders make, and they're, that's what they're about is profits. So I can attest that the detention center mental health system is pretty poor. I'm guessing it's not great in the um, criminal prisons. If somebody it's else. It's not great yeah. in the general public. We're having, well, we're that's true. Yeah, there, workers, there, is, there are some pictures in here of the, um, what was it called, Hannah, the, the mental health unit that Danny Lyons, and he has a picture of one guy that had been held, and you can see a picture of him behind bars, something like he'd been 
incarcerated for schizophrenia for, was it 30 years? So that's what mental health was like in a prison. Well, you know, I'm sure he committed some sort of crime that got him in there, but that's the kind of mental health he would have been getting in a Texas prison in the 1960s, and uh, who knows how much it's improved. If you're in prison, it will drive you crazy, literally, particularly because there's still in, in, in extensive use is solitary confinement units, SMUs they call them, in which people will have no contact with anyone else and uh, that, that, that literally drives people crazy. And the reason it's still in operation is the corrections officers see that it is the one thing the prisoners are really afraid of. Nobody wants to go in there because it will drive you insane. But I'm not sure that just because it's a useful management tool is a good idea for us to have places that literally drive people insane. An audience member asked the Etherton Gallery Prison Reform Panel if they could each get 10 volunteers to do something what would that be? For me, I think it would be the reentry stuff. The Salvation Army has some pretty good programs where they help prisoners transition from prison into the real world. And I think prisoners coming out don't have a lot of friends, they don't have a lot of contacts, they don't have a lot of money, and for somebody to actually just go in there and work with them to introduce them to it, um, it would, would do a great deal of good in terms of making them feel like that the society wants them again and would like them to do something besides fall into the old bad habits. As far as the detention centers go, um, there's a group in Tucson that organizes regular visits. They've gotten permission to visit particularly the women in Eloy. Um, I think you're supposed to know Spanish if you do that because most of the detainees are Spanish. And if you can go up and visit, they have letter writing campaigns. You can have a pen pal in the prison. And it's, it's valuable for the immigrant detainees in particular because they don't know when they're getting out and they can be in there for years on end, particularly a lot of the asylum seekers, and they don't have families nearby visiting. So that's not something that's changing the system, but it's you know offering comfort to the people who are in there. I would say look for those nonprofits um, that help uh, people reintegrate into society. Um, there's a nonprofit called Gina's Team that's specifically for um, women incarcerated that helps them get the training while they're incarcerated and treatment and then helps them after they get out with um, you know job skills interviewing to just help them successfully reintegrate um, or otherwise you know there's another group called always that helps victims of trafficking and sex abuse and domestic violence as well so um, I would suggest look for those nonprofits and um, and just in general, if you don't like the direction the state is going, then please get involved in, in voting and making your voice heard. I would say that, that anything that you can do to try to shift the narrative around these punitive practices and um, making space for complex personhood, really. You said that it a lot of this is predicated on people being willing to accept formerly incarcerated and convicted people back into society, back into your communities, back into positions uh, of employment. Yeah, so having these discussions in, in your private circles, I think, is really important as well. Up next on 30 Minutes, author Margaret Regan describes the history of modern private prisons. Well, I can talk a little bit about how they got started. Um, Corrections Corporation of America started in 1983, right after um, the United States government had reinitiated the whole detention center system. Um, 
for a long time after Ellis Island was shut down in the 50s, um, we decided we weren't going to have de- immigration detention centers anymore. Then we had the Marielitos coming in the last year of the Jimmy Carter administration. Everybody freaks out. There are 125,000 Marielitos said to be criminals coming to Florida. So Jimmy Carter put them in makeshift detention centers. And a lot of them were released pretty quickly, but like five years later, as many as 5,000 of them were still being detained without trial. Right after that, the boat people came from Haiti. And then, you know, President Reagan was in place then, and he defined them as... Um, you know, illegal immigrants rather than refugees coming from the Duvalier regime. So he also made a whole bunch of makeshift prisons. Then the laws started to harden. We started having a lot of immigrants. So in 1983, Corrections Corporation of America, seeing a good opportunity, became, you know, they formed the corporation. And within a very short time, they had their first contract with the immigration and um, the old INS, Immigration and Naturalization Service, you know, the predecessor to Homeland Security. So they they could foresee, and they were right. You know, they started as this little company back then, and they also, parallel to the detention of immigration immigrant boom, we had this, the three strikes are out, you know, so what happened was we had a great need for many, many prisons really quickly. And so the private sector jumped in. And there, you know, and just last year I mentioned already the family detention centers for the immigrant women and children. You remember last year they were all coming up over the border. A lot of women and children came through Tucson. We had an immediate need. You know, Obama, who had abolished the last family detention center when he got into office, he jumped right in and said, this is a huge political problem. I'm going to incarcerate these women. So who did he turn to? The two family detention centers in Texas are both private prisons. I mean, they're big companies. It's like those big companies that went to Iraq, right? And, and you know, Blackwater, you know, all the, yeah. So they're, they know how to do it. They know how to make these prisons really fast. So they got the one in Dilly, which had something, beds for like 2,400 women and children. They had that up and operating by January. And by the way, by their second quarter report in 19, I mean, in 2015, they were gleeful that they had really made record profits in the Corrections Corporation of America because of this brand new thing with the women and children. In Eloy, they're charging $122 for an adult like Yolanda. In Dilly, Texas, they're charging $300 per person because after all, they're providing services for babies and children, and so that, you know, in theory, they're providing those services so they can charge a whole lot more. So whether it will continue, I mean, I guess, I mean, it is true that there's a conservative movement against this mass incarceration, incarceration partly because of the costs, but depending on the way our politics go with immigration, I think immigration detention centers are just going to keep growing. And, you know, we do have one in Arizona that's run by us, the, you, the people of the United States. ICE runs one in Florence, and it's a whole lot better than the ones that I've visited that are run for, by for-profit. They have many more um, visiting hours for families. Families can come seven days a week. The food's a lot better. The treatment is a lot better. And that's when we're monitoring it ourselves, you know, in the name of 
you know, the federal government in, the, in our name. So An audience member asked what we could do to send less people to prison. Just one way of doing that. There are not a bunch of ways of doing that. We've talked about some of them today, but one of them is the one we've talked about already. If we made sure that the 7,000 prisoners released every year with active substance abuse issues got treatment before they were released, then half of them, then at, at least half of them that, that you would expect to come back through recidivism wouldn't be coming back. And that means 3,500 beds you don't need. So we wouldn't have needed to do this 2,000 bed contract. We wouldn't need to do the rest of them. And that's how you shrink it. But we've just signed a contract that guarantees 90% occupancy over the next 17 years. So that's the way that then it comes back down to our leadership. The leadership at this state is not doing the right things in order to reduce poverty which is one of the main root causes of all these things. And it's not doing what it takes to be able to do that type of treatment to keep people from going back into prisons. So for-profit prisons do have an incentive to keep people in prison. And they cannot be allowed to continue to do that. But as long as we have lobbyists in positions to have the ears of the governors of our state, then that's going to continue to happen. And that's, that's where it comes down to people being involved as citizens and making sure that their friends and neighbors vote no matter what age or where they're from. Just to add to that, you know, that is one of the ways is uh, doing a, a treatment program. For example, this past year, close to 19,000 individuals were released from Arizona prisons and less than 1,000 were able to participate in this program. That's, you know, abysmal participation and that's partly because the Department of Corrections decides who is eligible and makes individuals ineligible for civil minor infractions or because they're not literate instead of giving them uh, the tools um, so that they're not able to go back. Right now in the Arizona prisons, about half of them have previously been in the Arizona prisons. And so that we're talking about like over 20,000 individuals right now that it's their second stint at least in the Arizona prisons. The other one is reclassification of certain offenses, right now about 26% of those in the prisons are there for property crimes like burglary or theft. And another 12% are there for um, drug possession for personal use or DUIs. If we just reclassified those and treated those individuals, we're talking about 36% of those right now in the prisons that could be receiving um, treatment because most of the individuals that are there for Property offenses is because they have an underlying substance abuse issue. So when we talk about sentencing reform, we're, we're talking about um, things like repealing high mandatory minimums, um, truth in sentencing, which basically curbs uh, parole so that people are, are serving the time that they were sentenced to. And like you said, it's 85 here in Arizona, 85% of, of your time. Three strike statutes, but also things like reining in sex offender registration, notification, civil commitment laws, meaningful parole review, and an overhaul of the bail bond system. And all of that requires statutory changes. But it's also for folks who are in positions of power, like the Pima County prosecutor, riding into, or when they're, they have so much control over plea agreements, let's say. If you could say in that plea agreement, if you could provide a pathway back that is so important if you could say in your plea agreement that after X number of years, your, your felony is reduced to a misdemeanor. If you could be cognizant of the fact that when a person is convicted of a felony, 
they are sentenced for the rest of their life. They are going to be paying for the rest of their life. And there's very little interest in what that means. So having a compassionate, ethical prosecutor actually makes a lot of sense and would make a big difference. All right, any closing comments from our panel here? Don't get depressed. <laughs> I say that about a lot of things in Arizona. We do have the ability to act. Uh, we have an, an election next November for the legislature that could make a difference. And uh, if we get people to be voting it, in a lot of different ways. Um, and there is the possibility that even if we aren't able to turn the legislature next November, that we can, at least in the prison reform, make a difference even this session with some folks who used to be big private prison fans starting to recognize it's not such a good thing. So I think we can come out thinking there is hope. But I would ur urge, I think like everyone said, including gentlemen over here, it's got to be a face-to-face, person-to-person transformation. And if we can all think of what we can do to be able to help the situation in our own lives and have the courage to treat other people like people and not like a symbol of something we're afraid of, then we can we can make a lot of things better, especially this. You've been listening to remarks made at a panel discussion hosted by Etherton Gallery on prison reform in conjunction with an exhibition by famed photographer Danny Lyon. Speakers included Etherton Gallery director Hannah Glassman, and panelists included Arizona State Senator Steve Farley, journalist Margaret Regan, attorney Lisette Flores, and American Friends Service Committee Program Associate Grace Gomez. The panel was moderated by Tucson Weekly political reporter and Zona Politics host Jim Ninsel. This has been part two of a two-part series. Thank you for listening to 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I'm Amanda Shogger.